Hello, my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, it's a very special episode, because we're talking about someone that I wrote a book about. And that person's name is Albert Pyun. You mispronounced Abbas Kiarostami. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, but yes, Albert Pyun. Now... For years, I knew Albert Pune as the director of Cyborg and the bad Captain America movie. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, that's how I knew him as well. When I was getting into just cinephilia, Albert Pune would pop up on all those websites like Stomp Tokyo, oh, yeah. Cold Fusion Video, and they hated him. They would always say, like, can you believe they let Albert Pune direct Captain America? Mm-hmm. And back in the day when the reviews used to be 10,000 words, just mm-hmm. trashing the film and summarizing it, it kind of cemented in my mind, oh, this guy is not good. Mm-hmm. And that changed for me when I stumbled upon a film that he made called Mean Guns. And Mean Guns is a film that came out in the 90s. It starred Christopher Lambert and Ice-T. It was released direct-to-video, and it was made for a song. One of the notable parts about the film is that it's one long gunfight, but there's no squibs, there's no bullet hits anywhere. Because when they shot the movie in, I think, uh, six to ten days, they couldn't damage the prison they were shooting in, which was a billion-dollar complex that was going to open in a few months. Mm -hmm. And when I saw this movie, I was surprised that I loved it as much as I did, because it was presenting something that I liked, John Wustel gunfights, but it was also weird. It was too bright. Everything was shot in wide-angle lenses. The lack of any pyrotechnics. A mumbo soundtrack through all of it. There was just something there, like a passion, a drive, that you don't always get in these like DTV action films. And that kind of sparked my imagination. And I think that I may have seen one or two of his films after that, but that didn't drive like a, oh man, I got to see everything that Albert Pyun uh, has made. That came much later. And you know, it's funny to me because Albert Pyun has been around forever. He's made over 40 movies. He worked in like the golden age of Canon Films, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, that company that has so many fans now. And he's worked with so many people, but he doesn't have that big a cult following. No, he doesn't. He has like little pockets here and there. And most of the time it's people going, I love Cyborg or I love Captain America because it was a part of their childhood. Mm -hmm. But I have not stumbled upon many people who go, oh, I like other Albert Pune films that people don't talk about. Now, I always knew Albert Pune as sort of like this affable guy Mm -hmm. who like he'd pop up in comment sections on the Internet you know, he's taken a tremendous amount of abuse from people over the years. Just, yes. Um, and and I remember hearing a few years ago that he was diagnosed with dementia and he still works. He's still making films of, of some kind or other. So he, And then you told me that he made this movie called Deceit. Mm-hmm. And what was the story behind Deceit? So this was the thing that really made me go, whoa, who is this Albert Pyun guy? And the story goes that... Albert Pune shot Cyborg, and his intention for it was it to be kind of a Ronin story, like a wandering samurai type. And his original cut of the film had this groaning guitar score, almost like Doom Metal by Tony Ripperetti and James Sad. And the story goes that Canon screened that version in a preview 
for um, just a random audience and they hated it. They left saying like, oh my God, the movie gives me a headache. And it didn't help that Albert Pune said, I want to release the movie in black and white. I think it will work better that way. <laughs> so Cannon freaked out one of Jean-Claude Van Damme's friends, uh, Sheldon Ledich, who would also direct a bunch of Van Damme films, was at that preview screening. He called up Van Damme and said, Cyborg is a disaster. You need to come in here and you need to fix it. And JCVD worked on the re-edit of Cyborg. Mm. Pune didn't like this. But he went along. I think that in his career, one of the things that defines him is that while he has all these wild ideas, he often goes along with it if it will get him to the next project. The classic, oh, well, you know, the next one will be better. <laughs> like, this may not work exactly how I want it to, but I can fix it the next time. And so Canon forced Pyun to do reshoots on Cyborg. And Pyun decided, okay, if I have to build a new location and we have to rent this equipment for a week, why don't I just shoot another feature film? <laughs> and because they rented the equipment for a week, Pyun shot the cyborg stuff really fast, got everybody offset, and then during the nights shot his film, which was called Deceit. <laughs> In only three days. In right? only three days. Yeah. One of the actors that's in the film that I spoke to said that you got one take, and if you screwed it up, you did not get a second. And he points out that one of the monologues he has is in complete darkness because he missed his mark. And I know that when you started to become obsessed with Albert Pune, and mm -hmm. I believe obsessed is the right word. I mean, I wrote a book on him. I hope so. <laughs> Nobody watches 44 Albert Pune movies <laughs> yeah. uh, and, is, and is sane. <laughs> that's right. Um, but you are, were very drawn to the fact that he's this guy who just has to create. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, people call him a hack, but a hack doesn't just like a hack is just cashing a check. William Bodine is a hack. Yeah. <laughs> but th but this guy is like he's he's drawn he, and it doesn't even matter so much what the finished movie is. It's the act of making it. And he constantly has to make films. Even right now, suffering from dementia. He's, he's making still making films. movies. Yeah. Even right now, he's on his Facebook trying to get the funding for his next picture. And you look at something like Deceit, and it's also a movie that it was made by someone that was hungry mm -hmm. and like wanted to do something specific. Whether you think it works or not is um, you know up to debate, but he was trying something. And that's something that I find really appealing. And watching his movies now, it's like, I can see that he's always trying something odd and interesting. Mm -hmm. There's always very strange decisions being made. Like Deceit, for example, is a movie about a woman that gets trapped in a warehouse. And by warehouse, I mean one room <laughs> with a big oscillating fan so it can make cool light beams. And she's propositioned by two men, one of them crazy, one of them more like a slick Wall Street type who want to have sex with her. That's what the entire film is. And also, they're aliens. Yeah, so it's like a sci-fi, very minimalist sci-fi <laughs> film. And these guys are going to destroy the world in an, in an hour, but they've been given this temporary reprieve so that they can have physical relations with a woman. And that sounds very exploitative in the way that it presents itself, but what it really is is like this David Mamet-ish light, like, bouncing yeah. dialogue yeah, between it's, it's everyone. it's like a fringe play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it looks great. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I wish I could have seen it in a better version. Mm -hmm. I mean, the version I saw was like a VHS rep. And, the only way, way it exists. And, you know, Albert Pin's movies, when you see them in HD and widescreen, look a lot better than you may think they're going to look. Mm -hmm. you know? 
And like this movie even ends with a feminist message where the power is put in the woman's hands mm -hmm. to destroy the world if she decides to or not. You know, I watched a trailer for this movie when it was being released on video. It was like, yeah, he, he shot this movie using basically the resources for the cyborg reshoot. You can see it's the same set. Um, at one point in the climax of Cyborg, they go crashing through a wall and they land on the deceit set because that was the reshoots. And he sold this movie back to... Uh, Golan and Globus had split at that point. Mm. It was this company, 21st Century Films. I can't remember if either Golan or Globus ran it, but he sold it back to 21st Century Films. <laughs> he did. Like, and they were just impressed that he was able to pull it off. <laughs> yeah. So I saw this trailer for the release where it's like from the original video release and it's really plays up like it's this camp thing. Mm. It's like Gary Owens narrates the trailer. Really? If you know his voice, his, it's kind of a silly voice. It's like, Oh, two aliens from uh, from out of space or out of this world in deceit, you know. And that's not what the movie is at all. No, it's like very uh, austere and and very dramatic. What's funny about the film that I learned uh, talking to the actor that's in it, Norbert Weiser, is that there's a kind of ambiguity about if these men are aliens or not mm -hmm. that the film actually destroys because it clarifies it in the opening mm -hmm. that something weird is going on, and that was added after the shooting was completed and they needed it to be padded out. Huh. <laughs> so it's weird that he went in and kind of muddled the structure of his film that he was trying to put together. Yeah, the tone of the opening is much different. It's mm -hmm. sort of goofy. Yeah, um, so maybe the trailer had been cut at that point and they were like, you need to make this seem more like the, uh, oh, we're having fun, mm -hmm. as opposed to this weird, as you said, kind of fringe play. Now, I was also surprised to learn from your book that the first Albert Pion movie, Sword and the Sorcerer, was actually like a pretty big hit. It was number 19 at the box office the year it came out. Yeah, it cost $4 million to make and um, grossed $40 million. Yeah, so like he started at the top and worked his way down, just like Orson <clears throat> Welles. Where did he come from? Uh, he came from Hawaii. He was born there. He grew up there. He was always a filmmaker, like the classic story, grabbing the Super 8 millimeter camera, going out, making little shorts with your friends. He worked on commercials. He edited them. He was always in the film industry. And it gets a little bit of hazy how he went from there to working on The Sword and the Sorcerer. But essentially what happened was that he and his friend, Tom Karnowski, ended up in Hollywood with the Sword and Sorcerer script and storyboards. So they had the whole package they could pitch. Went around town, everybody told them no. Now, it's clear that Pyun worked on movies during this time, but I can't find any reference to them other than the fact that he was good friends with Joseph Bardo, who was a cameraman, actor, and director who's most famous for appearing in a bunch of Ray Dennis Steckler films. Oh, fantastic. And if you don't know who that is, it's the guy who made Rat Think a Boo Boo. Um, the Incredibly Strange Creature who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. And I think the Lemon Grove kids. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could name all of Ray Dennis Steckler's movies that people want. <laughs> all I know is that Albert Pune worked with Joseph Bardo close enough that Joseph Bardo actually produced his film Vicious Lips years later. Mm. But I don't know what they were doing. I mean, I have some guesses looking at Joseph Bardo's filmography that maybe there were some adult films involved during that time, but I'm not 100% sure. And that's just, you know, guessing. No shame. No, no shame. there's no shame in that, yeah. especially if you're just coming up the, in the industry. Mm -hmm. So Sword and Sorcerer, giant hit. Producer takes all the credit. It even starts with a film by the producer's name. Oh, terrible. Yep. And uh, Albert Pyun, his next film took three years to make, but he made Radioactive Dreams, which was a nightmare. 
Nightmare and didn't work either. <laughs> and uh, I just watched that at a screening you put on mm. recently. And it's also an interesting film. I mean, apparently it was taken away from him and re-edited by others. It was taken away from him during shooting right. because the budget disappeared. And the other investors hire a bond company to ensure your film that if stuff goes wrong, the bond company steps in and say, okay, all the creative people move out. We're just going to shoot a releasable product. And that's what's going to go on the market. And it's a very weird movie. It's sort of like the road warrior meets Streets of Fire. Mm. And so it's Michael Dudikoff and another guy yeah. wearing like, you know, 1920s newsboy costumes in this post-apocalyptic world and they're two buds. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Very dance. claustrophobic. The tone is all over the place in a way that I find more ambitious and like, ah, he doesn't know what he's doing. And it's a bummer that it's not the movie that he wanted to make. I think it's pretty close. Mm. And the weirdest thing about it is that it's not a cult classic. Like yeah. something like Streets of Fire. I mean, you know, it's a little half baked, mm-hmm. but it's got a lot of fun stuff. Streets of Fire is pretty half baked. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't mean to say it isn't. Yeah. So, you know, knowing that The Sword and The Sorcerer was such a big hit, things could have gone so differently for mm-hmm. him. What if Steven Spielberg saw that and said, hey, let's get him to direct The Goonies or something? Even at that time, there was a rumor that, oh, it's really the cinematographer that directed mm-hmm. all of Sword of the Sorcerer. And if you see people talk about Albert Pyun around the internet, especially in the early 2000s, there's a lot of that, like, oh, he's not really the director. It's this person that did it, which he made 44 films. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not somebody new comes and saves his butt every single time. Yeah. And his vision, his auteurist vision, is pretty consistent throughout all the films as well. What would you say that vision is? What unites these films? Is it not so much the movies themselves as it is, like, the the idea of making them? I think that him and me, we like all the same stuff. And I think that says a lot about my attraction to his films. Mm-hmm. Like, he watches the same Hong Kong movies that I like. He mm-hmm. reads the same science fiction, the same fantasy. And that... As a director, his kind of articulation of that is very pure. There's no condescension mm-hmm. to the things that he's putting on screen. And that's to the positive and the negative. Like Sword of the Sorcerer, for example, is incredibly convoluted because it's set up like one of those fantasy novels. And it doesn't seem to understand that's not how you tell a movie version of the story. And also, while well, I remember uh, to talk about another auteur, when we were doing a Poverty Row episode and we watched Orson Welles' Macbeth, mm-hmm. I was trying to think, what is he trying to say with this adaptation of Macbeth? What's his interpretation on Macbeth? And what he was trying to say is, what if I made Macbeth at a Poverty Row studio? Yeah. And I, I, I get that with Albert Pune a little bit. It's like, what if I what if I made a movie in three days? What if I did but this? But there's a lot of films that are also articulations of his state of mind. For example, Nemesis 4, Death Angel, is a film that only came about because Miramax Films forced him to go do reshoots on the film Adrenaline, Fear of the Rush. And he decided, all right, I have to go out of the country. I might as well just make another film. Mm. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to piggyback on a film series that already exists. It'll have nothing to do with it. Mm. And it's going to be an articulation of how I feel as an artist, Mm. whether I feel like I'm selling out or I'm achieving the things that I want. That's all there in Nemesis 4 Death Angel. In your book, you have a fun analysis of the movie Crazy Six, which is a movie (laughs) that he made. Uh, in the late 90s, you know, after the fall of communism in some Eastern Bloc country. And Crazy Six is a funny movie because it's got uh, Burt Reynolds, Mario Van Peebles, Rob Lowe, Rob Lowe, and who's the fourth guy? Ice-T. Ice-T. Yeah, so it's got those four guys, four big-ish stars, and they're they're never in the same shot together. He shot them all separately. And the, the movie is very claustrophobic. 
like you never get any like great sweeping vista shots of this country but i mean it's well shot Mm -hmm. like all the scenes have interesting things that he's doing with colors and lights well the cinematographer george muradian who worked with albert pyun all through the 90s. I mean, this is something else that's attractive about his filmography is that he kept working with the same creative talent. Mm -hmm. So you can almost feel an evolution of their style. Mm -hmm. And something like Crazy Six wouldn't exist if they hadn't shot at all these locations. And like, all right, we need to find a different way to do this. So let's make it look like a Dario Argento nightmare, even though nothing is going on. I think the movie has this sort of airy, dreamy tone, Mm -hmm. like an Abel Ferrara movie, like a later Abel Ferrara movie has. I also compared it to David Lynch in the way that a lot of the scenes are propelled by the music. It's just someone mm. singing and it's like fading to all these colored shots of just faces looking into the camera. Yeah, Roblo looking yep. smoldering. But I think that the issue with something like Crazy Six is the issue that came up over and over again in Albert Pune's career is that I think these things interest him and it interests him to explore them in different ways. But he's not always delivering on the stuff that you expect from these genre products. Like Crazy Six presents itself as a crime action movie and there is no action and very little crime. (laughs) But it's Rob Lowe on the run. Yes. Because there are several gangs in this country, Mm -hmm. several uh, drug affiliated gangs, and two of them have decided to team up and stop a third one. The third one being led by Ice T, but then you know there are some double crosses. There's some some. But there's mostly just hanging out at bars yeah. and like staring off in the like, into like space. All, all the plot happens in the first ten minutes, and <laughs> yeah. then it's Rob Lowe looking sad mm-hmm. in a in a place while the music plays. And I can understand if you had gotten this on video, being like, "What the hell is this?" Yeah. But MVD put out a Blu-ray that looks stunning. Like all the colors are perfect, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and the cinematographer told me when I interviewed him. He never considered that these were going straight to video. If he did, and he modified his shooting style, he would just give up. What's the point? He shot them like anamorphically mm-hmm. with tons of filters that would never show up on video. And they would play once in probably the studio theater to screen it to the cast and crew on 35 millimeter. And then they were just dumped right to video. And that was it. No prints were probably made either. Tragic. Yeah. But now we get to see them on Blu-ray the way they were meant to be seen. Yeah. I mean, one of them that you watched this week was Cyborg, right? Yeah. So Cyborg is obviously his most famous and beloved movie. It's Another sort of Mad Max type mm. type thing, although heavily influenced by Japanese samurai movies. Yeah. Set in a post-apocalyptic world where, uh, how, how would you describe the plot? It's, it's like, like in the theatrical version, a virus kind of like destroyed the world. And there's a woman that has the cure to the virus that Jean-Claude Van Damme has to help across the country to the last settlement mm-hmm. and save the world. There are various... Uh, very funny fights that mm-hmm. happen as yeah. it goes along. It's like, you think sort of a cheesy Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. film. Yeah. yeah, like this is it. Yeah, and this is like the ultimate example and of it. And they're all wearing ridiculous costumes. And the reason for that is that uh, Canon Films was supposed to make He-Man, Masters of the Universe Part 2 and Spider-Man simultaneously and Albert Pino was going to direct both of them, but the uh, check for Canon Films bounced and they lost the rights to both of them, but they had already made all the costumes for He-Man, Masters of the Universe 2 and had built some sets so that's what everybody's wearing in cyborg are the hero costumes from that movie that's interesting they're gonna do masters of the universe too because the first one flopped yes <laughs> but i think that it was gonna be a much lower budget version dolph lundgren was not coming back mm. and albert Pyn was gonna try something completely different mm. uh would they have been good movies if he had made spider-man and uh he-man masters of the universe 2 probably not but they would have been interesting yeah i would have enjoyed seeing albert Pyn's spider-man i mean when albert Pyn, after he had all those disasters at the beginning of his career he ended up working for canon and he made some pretty safe pictures that made money and were released theatrically stuff like dangerously close and down twisted not my favorites but 
he showed that, hey, look, I can color within the lines. Also a mystery science theater movie, Alien from L.A. with Kathy Ireland. Mm-hmm, which I avoided forever because probably one of those bad movie reviews. And the movie's not so hot, but it's fascinating when you watch it, realizing that he just ripped off, was inspired by Terry Gilliam's Brazil throughout the movie. Huh. The whole setup of the film is like that. There's an interrogation room. At one point, he tries to do like a swashbuckling, like a Thief of Baghdad kind of stuff, but he doesn't quite pull it off. Mm-hmm. But even those attempts are fascinating to me. And the movies that I love are enough for me to look at the ones that are like kind of ramshackle and try to find the stuff that's good about them. Because like Nemesis, which you saw, mm-hmm. is like real solid, great movie. Looks great. Yeah, that he pulled off the John Woo style action, mm-hmm. doing stuff you've never seen before or really since and tons of special effects with the budget the time the creative crew were there to just nail that film well i know one that you liked and which i enjoyed too was nights from mm-hmm. i think 1992 or three which is uh, sort of a, a wuxia type movie yeah the flying swordsman film from um hong kong the most popular example being crushing tiger hidden dragon or hero mm-hmm. but you got to consider that um, albert Pune was making this in the early 90s mm-hmm. so these films were not even like a glimmer in any of the studio's eyes but i was fascinated by how much it looked like a hong kong movie from that time mm-hmm. not just the way the camera moves like a lot of these like zooms and close-up shots yeah. of the fights a lot of low angle shots and also just the sort of the way the sun hits the camera yeah, the way it's edited yeah. like i mean the cinematographer said that on that film they went in with the rule that they would use no artificial lights so it's all lit with mirror boards so there's like a harsh sweaty light on everyone Mm -hmm. and this is a movie that also ends with a pretty lengthy 20 minute action scene Mm -hmm. that these kind of DTV films don't deliver because why go to all that trouble to make something that kind of ambitious? And they are Hong Kong style fight scenes, mm. people leaping through the air, yeah. you know, calling the moves that they're saying. Mm. It reminded me of True Hearts the Blade, and then I was surprised to learn the blade came out years later. It reminded me a bit of Godfrey Ho's Ninja Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's not a very, um, uh, well, I like Ninja Terminator. I don't know about <laughs> <right>. you. <laughs> uh, but it feels like that too, because it's like, it's this post-apocalyptic world again. Mm-hmm. And it feels a little bit like they're shooting it at the park. Yeah. And well, they're actually shooting it like on Monument Valley. So yeah. there's actually these big expanses. It does, it does look good. Yeah. There's but, scope. But the fact that the people in it, they're wearing these costumes that sort of look like thrift store costumes. And I'm not, I'm saying this with affection. Yes. It's like, it's, it's got a lovingly handcrafted look to it. Mm-hmm. All of which reminds me just a little bit of Godfrey Ho. So this is the movie that the review that I vividly remember where the guy compared Albert Pune to Ed Wood mm-hmm. and said stuff like, oh, the villains take on the heroes one at a time. Isn't this crazy? And it's like, come have, on. Have you ever seen a Kung Fu movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any Kung Fu movie. Yeah. And they're doing stuff in this picture that they, you know, you wouldn't see around this time. Like the climax is crazy where Chris Christopherson, who plays a cyborg, gets cut in half and the hero played by Cassie Long, a real kickboxer, straps him to her back and then they like sword fight together mm-hmm. <laughs> back to back. That's the kind of stuff that when Albert Pune just kind of like knocks it out of the park and he nails an ambitious idea, that's when I stand up in my seat. I'm like, ooh, yeah, that's why I like him so much. Mm -hmm. Now, things get a little shakier um, later in his career where he ended up doing stuff like directing three feature films in around 18 days with a bunch of rappers in an ex-communist country. And those are not good. And those kind of came to define him in a certain way in the late 2000s. A lot of those have uh, Snoop in them, right? Yes, they do. (laughs) Uh, I mean, one of them has 
two minutes of Snoop from documentary footage in the opening credits, but he's still on the cover ah, of the film. Real 36 crazy fists. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but even then, his film career is so interesting to study from beginning to end because there is like this kind of up and down wave pattern to it. And his inability to give up. Like, he will not say, all right, I'll just do something else. And he always adapts to circumstances. There's a movie that he made late in his career, which I read about in your book, and I'm, I'm forgetting what it's called, but it's like, a lot of it's like shot on the dash cam of a car. Yeah, it's called Infection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He made that film completely independently. It's one long take mm-hmm. from the dashboard of a vehicle. So it's it's weird when I read people say like, ah, he's such a hack. I think they're using the term that like they don't like his movies because he's obviously trying stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I hear a story. Um, there's this movie Heat Seeker, which is just kind of a generic shot in the Philippines tournament film. Mm-hmm. Not a big fan of it. You know, Albert's been shooting with all these long lenses on the picture, and it kind of robs the impact of the fighting. It feels like a sports tournament you're seeing edited in front of you. And the cinematographer went, well, the reason for that is we were supposed to have two weeks to shoot that film. And the arena told us, sorry, guys, you only get two days. Mm -hmm. And so I went in at 4 a.m. in the morning with 60 guys. We set up all the lights, pre-lit it. Uh, set up multiple cameras and then just shot the fight scenes one after the other and that's everything that's in the movie we shot it in two days instead of 14 (laughs) incredible and even if you don't like the movies when you hear stories like that you're like wow that's crazy yeah (laughs) and i think that's very you know fascinating and i maybe people don't know about that or they can't see the stuff that they like about the ones that i love like mean guns and nemesis and and deceit, but I, I wish other people would kind of get into his work a little bit more. Not like me, which is I've watched all of them. You don't need to do that, people. Well, the next time somebody makes a special edition Blu-ray of one of these movies, you just wait. You're going to get a call to do a commentary <laughs> or an interview. That's I hope so. Because you are now the Albert Pune scholar. <laughs> the Albert Pune scholar. Yes. You know, you mentioned some movies you like. Are there any others that like aspiring Albert Pune fans that they should check out? Probably not Captain America, right? Um, Captain America... I talk about it on this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Bad Movie. Listen to that episode, and with that context, watch Captain America, and I think you'll enjoy it a lot more if you just go in kind of, ah, I just want to watch a superhero movie. I like the captain's rubbery suit. Yes, I like how much of a loser he is. (laughs) And if you watch it through those eyes, it's much more enjoyable. (laughs) Um, I mean, in the book that I wrote, Radioactive Dreams, The Cinema of Albert Pyun, there's a section at the beginning where I I offer a few kind of movies I think people should check out. Like the ones I mentioned, Nemesis, Radioactive Active Dreams, Deceit, Mean Guns, the director's cut of Cyborg called Slinger that Pyun put out himself, and then like the ones that are like pure entertainment, Knights, Sword and the Sorcerer, Kickboxer 2, The Road Back, and uh, Spitfire, which is his uh, version of Gymkata, but with a real-life female gymnast, and um, Lance Hendrickson playing a James Bond ripoff who flies around on a jetpack at one point. He had me at uh, his version of Gymkata. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, So I hope I've piqued people's interest and they want to check out this book because I did write it in a way that you're supposed to read it from beginning to end, not skip to the movie you like and just read what I said about it. I think it benefits from being read from beginning to end because Mm. it's like you follow this guy as he you know there there are hopes and hopes are dashed and yeah then, you know the walls start closing in on him mm-hmm. and he's still fighting yeah and i would also recommend brain smasher a love story the andrew dice clay film <laughs> that albert Pune made wow <laughs> yeah of course that i mean that doesn't even need to be said yeah, right yeah <laughs> 
But I think of that as more of an Andrew Dice Clay film than I think of it as an Albert Pune film. <laughs> yeah. Who's the true author? <laughs> oh, man, you'll just have to watch the film yourself and check it out. I mean, I think that Albert Pune will get the respect he deserves once context is applied to his films and they're released properly. Mm-hmm. Because they're still not even, like, Mean Guns, which is one of my favorites. The only version way to get it in North America is still a full-screen, washed-out DVD. Germany jumped on the train, and they have a beautiful, widescreen... Mm-hmm. Albert Pune commentary track, the soundtrack CD, but nothing in North America yet. And if you see some of his movies with an audience, they're very fun. I yes. would love to see Nights with an audience. Oh, yeah, I think Nights would probably kill with an audience. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. I mean, I would love to watch Deceit with 10 to 15 people in a small room who are ready <laughs> to watch this. And the parallels to Detour are very dense. <laughs> and uh, yes, someone smarter than me could write an essay about both those things. Mm-hmm. If Edgar G. Ulmer can get uh, tons of respect, why can't Albert Pune just get a little? Because <laughs> he just showed up at the wrong time, I think, in the 90s, where the super fans weren't kind of glomming onto him like they did with people in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And maybe just time will be his friend. Uh, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us your questions or comments at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Zachary Sokol. And he goes, Hello, Justin and Will. Firstly, I want to thank you for the amazing podcast. Your show brings me hours of delight. And when I mean delight, I mean hours of pain because I can only listen to your show while working out. So by the time I finish your backlog, I'll be able to run from California to Canada without breaking a sweat. This is the second person who says they listen to us while doing some form of exercise. I'm glad somebody's getting some exercise (laughs) around here. Can we do it through like osmosis and like get the benefits from you guys doing that? (laughs) I have a suggestion for an episode. Would you ever consider doing one on John Huston's Moby dick and the rocky relationship it caused between john houston and the screenwriter ray bradbury that resulted in ray bradbury nearly going insane to the point of bradbury thinking he was herman melville it's a fascinating story and something i think would be perfect for an episode thank you for your hours of entertainment and the many laughs zach interesting i mean john houston isn't all that he's he's not somebody i've ever been that interested in i have only in the sense that he was the journeyman who would do anything Mm -hmm. but he still approached it like sometimes he would be awake and sometimes he would be asleep at the wheel. I mean, he has great movies. Yeah. No doubt about it. Have you read Picture by Lillian Ross? Uh, it's it's on my shelf. Oh, right you got to read it. That one's great. And it, I think a lot of the things we know about John Huston come from that mm-hmm. book. Yeah. And as far as screenwriter-director collaborations, I, what comes to mind is like Lem Dobbs and Steven Soderbergh on something like The Limey, which is especially bold in my mind because of the commentary track where they just argue throughout it. Right. Well, I know that... Ring Lardner Jr. was very upset at Robert Altman on the script for MASH Hmm. because Altman famously didn't respect uh, screenwriters all that much or he didn't like the script was just a blueprint for him and so that movie is full of like overlapping dialogue as all Altman movies are improv off the cuff jokes yeah. and stuff like that but Lardner won an Oscar for it yeah I mean there's a lot of people that won Oscars that didn't deserve it like during the blacklist uh, period yeah when people's names were going on stuff I also uh, Frederick Raphael who wrote Eyes Wide Shut wrote a memoir about... I just read it recently yeah it's good yeah it's a little I mean I I don't know he's uh, a little bitter but he is but what's really funny is that like he makes he, he makes Kubrick look like a bit of a of, of a fool yeah. when writing stuff someone who refused to make any decisions about stuff yeah and that like he's like why would anybody want to work with him I think there's some books about screenwriters working with Hitchcock in mm. that way as well I mean I would love to do an episode on screenwriters which we've have never done yeah it's funny I mean you, you think 
film is just a medium where it seems like directors are the ones you mm. gravitate to. I mean, the, you, it's hard to think of auteur screenwriters aside from a couple of examples. Like, like Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, or Patty Chayefsky. Mm-hmm. I mean, Patty Chayefsky would be fun just because directors like to screw with him. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, so many of the screenwriters you know are the ones who are writer-directors. Yes. You know, your, your Woody Allens or, or people like that. Or, yeah, people who started as screenwriters and then transitioned into directing as well. Because even someone mm-hmm. like Charlie Kaufman, yeah. he became, like a director and mm-hmm. so i would love to just get like a pure screenwriter so anyway thank you for your letter uh zachary and again if you want to email us it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com this week on our patreon we're talking about a movie that's you know taking the nation right now oh, it's on the tip of everyone's tongues everybody's going to see it it is the wrecking crew starring dean martin and sharon tate <laughs> Uh, we also, we find some time to talk about the new Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, and the reason we talk about this very um, lame uh, spy spoof is because it has a prominent role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So we use it as kind of a jumping off point to talk about Tarantino's influences and also have a discussion about our own thoughts about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So check that out on our Patreon. It's $5 a month uh, to become a subscriber. You get our entire back catalog. It's like 100 and. 30 episodes at this point so check it out we really appreciate it that's what keeps us going otherwise the hate of me and will would have been too much and this would have ended by now speaking of dean martin it's a very like martin and lewis Lewis. style relationship exactly you know and we're getting old and weathered and starting to look like duke mitchell (laughs) so next week what are we doing will Yasujiro Ozu, the hmm. Japanese filmmaker. I think the logical jumping off point after Albert Pune. I mean, we are trying to cover all of cinema, so <laughs> yeah, but... here are two extremes. Uh, so we'll be talking about Tokyo Story. And I think also Late Spring. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a handful of Ozu films, and I've read um, Donald Ritchie's book on him, mm-hmm. so I feel we'll have stuff to talk about. Searing, never heard stuff before. <laughs> yeah. We're going to blow your mind. Did you know that he broke the 180-degree rule? <laughs> that he liked to shoot as if someone was on their knees? Yeah, I, I took intro to film. <laughs> I, I remember some of this stuff. Yeah, so we're going to have to push through that, and we're just going to, yeah, revolutionary episode on Ozu. Next week on The Important Cinema Club. And until then, I'm Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I completely forgot to mention that you can buy uh, my book, Radioactive Dream, The Cinema of Albert Pune, on any Amazon website, all of them, .com, .de, .ca. It's there. It's $15 US, so check it out. Folks, we need to help Amazon pay for the next season of Jack Ryan. So <laughs> Season three, because I believe the second one just came out. Yeah. <laughs> and listen, we need that movie to finally come out from your favorite. Oh, oh, that movie. Yes. Yes. Let it not be spoken of. (laughs) All right. So, oh, the sun is coming out. (laughs) Doesn't seem like the movie will. I also forgot to mention something that is always the first at the top of Albert Pune's cinematography, which is that he was mentored by Akira Kurosawa. Whoa. And that always blows people's minds. It's also not true. He was mentored in the sense that he probably liked Kurosawa's movies. But he did mentor was Toshiro Mifune. Whoa. Yeah, because Mifune seems to have seen a short film that Albert Pyun made, was so impressed that he invited him over to Japan to work on a Kurosawa film that Mifune was going to star in. It's the Russian one that he made. Oh, Dursa Uzula. Yep, that's the one. Yeah. And... As history shows, uh, Mifune and Kurosawa couldn't make it work. And so Albert Pune was in Japan, and he ended up going to work with Mifune on a bunch of TV shows instead. Right, because Mifune never worked with Kurosawa again. Never again, yeah. 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 So it was right, like, close to him, and he ended up working on a bunch of TV instead, where he probably learned more lessons that helped him out 
on his movies than he would have working with yeah, Slowpoke Kurosawa. Washed up director who, <laughs> washed who up. had to go over to Russia to get financing. <laughs> yep. Loser. But that made me think of like mentor-mentee relationships when it comes to filmmakers. I mean, we've spoken of at length about uh, Peter Bogdanovich and Orson Welles. Yes. And do you think that... I mean, at one point, Peter Bogdanovich must have been like, ah, I'm going to surpass Orson Welles. I didn't just make a successful movie with Targets, but I made The Last Picture Show, and I'm going to make more. And then it just fell away through arrogance. it's not just Welles. He also had John Ford and Howard Hawks Mm -hmm. and other people that he'd hunted down. Uh, He he wanted to join their ranks, not so much to become the next Orson Welles, but to become the next great filmmaker who could stand shoulder to shoulder with these titans. I wonder what, like, I mean, it's definitely arrogance that kind of destroyed... Peter yeah. Bogdanovich, because he had those three successes, like Targets, The Last Picture Show, and then What's Up, Doc? And then Paper Moon. And then Paper Moon. Yeah, yeah. so four successes. Mm-hmm. And then it that was it. Like, yeah. his head was so big, he couldn't get through doorways anymore. Couldn't make it to shoots on time because of the big head. He divorced <laughs> his wife, Polly Platt. Yes, <laughs> which is arguably the true guiding creative force. Although I know he disputes that. <laughs> yeah, but I think his movies would say otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's kind of a bummer situation. But it's rare that you see like a mentee kind of overtake the director and overshadow him completely. Well, there aren't a lot of examples that I can think of two directors who I think of as that intertwined, Mm. that close from different generations, a a father son type. I know that Brett Ratner. uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. I know who you're going to say. Extremely like wanted to project the image of somebody who was following in those footsteps. Brett Ratner aligned himself very much with certain older, like new Hollywood figures. Peter Bogdanovich, I believe, lived at at Brett Ratner's house for a time. That's really funny. And also, uh, who could forget the director of such classics as Fingers and Harvard Man, Mr. James Toback. Oh, God. Uh, Was Brett Ratner like James Toback's best pal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That does not surprise me. I wonder what they had in common. In the slightest. (laughs) (laughs) There's mostly people that their relationship with another director didn't come to define them. Like, um, you know, Martin Scorsese was very close to Michael Powell because Michael Powell the director of The Red Shoes and uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp uh, ended up marrying uh, Thelma Shoemaker mm-hmm. his editor and they worked together on their biographies and stuff like that and there's also John Cassavetes with Martin Scorsese well there's that famous story where Scorsese made a film for Roger Corman Boxcar Bertha and he showed it to uh, Cassavetes and Cassavetes looked very ashen afterwards and said you spent a year of your life making shit it's good for what it is but Mm. don't do that again (laughs) that is a very harsh critique I mean you just reminded me of the king of mentee directors and that's Roger Corman well that's absolutely true and you know Joe Dante for instance Mm -hmm. uh, still very closely aligned to Roger Corman and like Jonathan Demme and Mm. Jonathan Kaplan and Alan Arkish all these people that came out of the Corman school of filmmaking there's that story that Ron Howard always likes to tell Mm. about working on Grand Theft Auto and he said we're doing this big derby this demolition derby climax it's supposed to have a huge audience we have 40 people here it doesn't look like it's a full house can we get some more extras and corman said well ron you're gonna have to work with 40 people but the good news is if you do good with this picture you'll never have to work for me again every time i look at twitter 
and I see like Roger or something like that, like uh, trending. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Roger Corman's going to pass away. I probably sooner than later, I oh, would say, man. if you know I, what I, I mean, want him I just want him around forever. He's a link to another age. Cause once he's gone, they're like, all gone. Yeah. There's no more of those. I mean, there was no one like Roger Corman no. and I don't think there ever will be actually. Yes, it will. His name's Justin the clue. Yeah. And I'm taking your investments right now. At Albert Pune. Yeah. And Albert Pune, mm-hmm. who started a company called Filmworks because he wanted to be a Roger Corman-like business model, but he just couldn't quite get it off the ground. Well, it's hard. Not everyone can be Roger Corman. 